0: Hey, let me welcome you once again uh, to Rockbridge Community Church, wherever you've gathered to share this moment with us. Whether you're in Hickson or Calhoun, Ringgold, Dalton, or Chatsworth, thanks for being here. My name is Matt. And, hey, I just want to say this real fast. We learned a new song this weekend at all of our campuses, Reckless Love. Uh, the Bible commands us to sing new songs to the Lord. And there probably, in, in my estimation, there probably hasn't been a more accurate theologically written song just to communicate how God loves us as that one in, in, in recent memory or in recent years. So if you're like a new, a new Christian or if you're kicking the tires of Christianity or you've you've tasted the, the love of Jesus for a long time, what a great song to sing our theology and to internalize How much God loves you, that he would leave the 99 to pursue you wherever you've gone. And and the mess you make in your life, uh, it's never greater than than the love Jesus has for your life. And that was demonstrated in what we celebrate this time of year here on a Palm Sunday weekend, moving into Easter weekend, and we're excited about that. Today, I'm excited because we're going to wrap up this series called The Prayer Project. And some people have been fasting. We've been praying together at lunch or at breakfast over Facebook live. We've had a day of prayer. So many awesome opportunities for us to just say, Lord, teach us how to pray. So we're going to wrap this up, conclude this, summarize this and send us out, hopefully, as people who are more committed to doing what Jesus asked us to do, which is to pray. Now, to introduce uh, today's topic, I don't know, there's a question that we sort of ask. I'm going to call it the secret sauce question, and and the reason I call it the secret sauce question is, like, you've had some really good food, and you're like, like, it's homemade usually, and someone's like, hey, how come this tastes so good? How did you make it? What is in this? Or my my kids will see a phenomenal athlete, like, you know, basketball season now, Steph Curry, uh, who's one of the Greatest shooters in the history of the NBA, and they're like, "How does he do that? What's the se- and what's the secret sauce to that?" You've bumped into somebody. They've lost a lot of weight or they've gained a lot of muscle. And you're like, hey, what's your secret? How did you do that? How did you lose the weight? How did you gain muscle? How did you, you know, get in shape? Whatever the case may be. And we ask this like secret sauce kind of question, like what's your secret? And here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the, here's the truth, okay? Uh, we, we're looking for some secret code. We're looking for some special gimmick because we all kind of want the microwave approach. But usually the answer to the secret sauce question is something simple and, and Something that just kind of gets repeated and has to be done over and over and over again. So like my mother-in-law makes the greatest meatballs in the solar system. All right, I mean we just like love them. So I, I you know, I ask her, hey, uh, Grandma, what is the secret to how do you make it taste so good? And and it's all the usual suspects, you know, that you would think for meatballs, the ground beef, and you know, an egg to hold everything together, and tomato sauce. But the secret sauce to her meatballs is white vinegar, not added to the ground beef, but added into the tomato sauce before you add it to the ground beef. Okay, and I don't know what it is about that, but like, it's they're like legendary in our family. My grandmother's uh, or my my mother-in-law's meatballs. Steph Curry, greatest shooter in the NBA, right? My boys will say, how does he do that? In an ESPN article, here's his secret sauce. During the off season, he makes a point to make 500 three-point shots a day. Not try 500 a day, but make 500 a day. And he's the greatest shooter in NBA history. If you run into somebody and they've lost a lot of weight and you want to know, hey, what did you use? And they're going to say the Sheboleth or Atkins diet. Let me just tell you the bottom line of what they did, okay? They ate fewer calories than they burned, period. And that's where you and I have problems, Right? (laughs) I don't want to eat fewer than I burn. I would, you know, so, so that's what they did. If, some, if you meet somebody that gained muscle, hey, how would you do that? What workout did you use? Here's the bottom line of what they did. They overstressed their muscle either with high, high reps or lots and lots of weight. And they did it, they did it like multiple times a week, and, and they did it for a long time. And that's it. Okay? So there's re- the secret sauce is really not secret. The secret sauce is really simple. It just kind of has to be applied. Well, what I hope that you have gotten if you've been here, what I hope that you've gotten... Over the last five weeks together, is that the secret sauce of God's kingdom or the how of God's kingdom is prayer? That prayer is how the kingdom. Advances. That prayer is how we seek the Lord's will on earth as it is in heaven. That prayer is, is what connects the dots, and that prayer is the how. Now, for me growing up, I thought prayer was like a pregame warm-up. Like when I played football or ran track, you went through warm-ups to get your muscles ready and your body ready. But during a game, you'd never see a football player stop and do jumping jacks. He did that before the game. You never see an athlete running around the track stop stop and start stretching stretching their hammies. That's all pregame, And I thought that was what prayer was. I'll pray before my day. I'll I'll pray, you know, bless my food, and then I'll just move on, and then it's up to me. Pray, check the box, get God on my side, then it's up to me. The more I I, I study Scripture, the more I understand prayer. Prayer is is all of it. Prayer is the strategy. Prayer is the play call. Prayer, Prayer is God's game plan. Prayer is what God wants His people and His church to do. But here's where it sort of breaks down, whether it's prayer or whether it's the secret sauce for Steph Curry or for your diet or for the secret to your grandmother's meatballs or chocolate cake, is when you start understanding this, you start wondering, am I attempting something that is possible or am I attempting something that's inevitable? Now let me explain that. So here's the question: You start praying for something, and you want to. You're asking, "Hey, is it possible that this is going to happen, or is it inevitable?" If I go out and shoot and make 503 points a day during my off season, is it possible I'll be like Steph Curry, or is it inevitable? And and what happens with your diet, what happens with your prayer life, what happens with your exercise routine is the routine or or the effort starts wearing you down, and and what you had dreamed of as a future reality for yourself becomes possible, and, and then it sort of just becomes improbable, and then you stop and you go to your next gimmick, and you try to find the secret sauce to getting rich, or the secret sauce to whatever, and, you, and we just sort of stop. And the question that we're going to wrestle with today, and it makes a world of difference in how you pray and if you pray, is, is when we pray, is it because we're praying for something that's possible, or are we praying for something that's inevitable? And if we could get a vision, if the, and I've been praying this all afternoon, if the Lord would give us a vision... For something so much bigger... then then I think it would fuel our prayers, fuel our church, and and fuel your life. So I want to go back, and I'm going to use a lot of scripture today, a lot of scripture today, more than we normally use. And let me just tell you why we do this, okay? Occasionally why I'll do this. Because the Bible is like your eyes. The Bible is like a pair of glasses to see things as they really are. And that's why I love the Word of God. That's why I love teaching it. That's why I love reading it. That's why I love praying it. It helps me see things that I would miss in and of myself. It's like when I operated nuclear Reactors. Well, I can't go inside a reactor and watch what's going on. You'll die. So I have to look at my instruments, look at gauges, look at all these things on a big on a big board on a big screen to know what's going on inside there. The Bible is how you look at the reality of God's power and God's work and and God's calling upon our lives. So I'm going to take you through and show you. I think what is the secret to you and I praying kingdom advancing, kingdom seeking prayers. So we're going to start with the birth of Jesus or the birth announcement of Jesus in Luke chapter one, where the angel comes to Mary and says, he talking about Jesus will be great and will be called the son of the most high God. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom Will have no end. And we get introduced to this concept in the New Testament of a reign, a rule, a kingdom that's never going to end, a kingdom that's going to last forever. And then Jesus starts preaching, and John the Baptist announces him, and then Jesus starts preaching. And here's the message of Jesus Mark 1 gives us a summary. Jesus goes to Galilee, proclaiming, shouting, saying the good news of God, and here's the good news the time is fulfilled, the time is here, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. So you'll be a part of a kingdom that has no end. And and then he he recruits followers and he gives them an assignment. And Luke 9 gives us a summary of this assignment. So he brings together the 12, the 12 disciples of the 12 apostles. He gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. Then he sent them to proclaim something, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. So these disciples are getting a vision that they are part of something. Now, the question that we're asking is, are they part of something that is merely possible or are they part of something that is inevitable? Matthew 16, Jesus gives the vision for the church. He says, on this rock or this confession of his lordship and messiahship, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. So the church is an offensive weapon of God's that, the, that batters the gates of hell. The gates of hell go on defense in the face of the church, and they will not overpower it. In other words, the church is going to get in the end zone. The church is going to touch home plate. The church is going to win. The kingdom is going to triumph. And I will give you, disciples, you 12, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so now we suddenly have a vision. That what God is doing and promises to do on earth is not something that's merely possible. It's possible for you to lose weight. It's possible for you to shoot as good as Steph Curry. It's possible for you to make meatballs as good as my mother-in-law. But it's inevitable that the kingdom of Jesus will win and will triumph in the end. And you and I have this invitation to participate in it. Matthew 24 begins to give us the scope of the kingdom. The good news of the kingdom, how does the kingdom advance? Through proclamation or through words or through preaching and teaching and witnessing and inviting and sharing. What we're encouraging everybody to do as we head into Easter weekend, bring some with you, bring somebody with you who needs to know some good news. So the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all the nations and then the end will come. So the kingdom news has to go out to all the geographic ends of the earth, all the ethnic ends of the earth, all the nations, all the people groups. So Jesus is inviting them to participate in an inevitable outcome, in an inevitable end, in an inevitable triumph. Not merely imagine a possibility, but participate in something that is inevitable. Acts 1, 7 and 8, Jesus gives them further marching orders before he leaves them physically. It is not for you to know the time or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. They said, Jesus, when is the end of time going to come? And Jesus says, you're never going to know that. So anybody that tells you they know when the end of times is coming, they know more than Jesus, okay? So don't get caught up in that. And then he goes and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. Now, where are they going to be witnesses of his? In Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And he ties that back to what he said at the end of chapter Luke. And so, at the end of Luke's gospel... So we have this inevitable sense that the kingdom of Jesus is going to triumph. And it's not just going to triumph over Rome and Jerusalem or over Rome and the promised land. It is going to go and triumph and run and be proclaimed into the ends of the earth. And if prayer is the how and prayer is the secret sauce, the disciples are praying for something that God has declared is going to happen. It's inevitable. Get in on it. Pray into it. Live into it. This is your life. This is your mission. This is your calling. And so they start proclaiming the gospel in Jerusalem. And they start getting opposition and they start getting threats. But listen to how they pray in Acts four 29. They're praying to God and they said, Lord, consider their threats. And they don't pray, God protect us from them. They pray, grant that your servants may speak your word, because how does the kingdom advance? Through proclamation, through invitation, through witnessing, through telling people about Jesus, through telling people about the resurrection of Christ from the dead and that he died for their sins, so that you may speak your word with all boldness. Then we get this refrain that's repeated numerous times in the book of Acts. Acts 6-7, it says this, So the word of God spread. And the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. And then later on, Paul's going to write a letter uh, so so many years after this event, and he's going to say this, 2 Thessalonians 3, 1. Brothers and sisters, pray for us that the word of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. And what Paul grasps and the 12 grasps is what I pray we as Rockbridge can grasp. Jesus' disciples believed in the inevitable triumph of God's kingdom. They were kingdom seekers. And because they believed it was inevitable, when they prayed, they weren't praying hope-so prayers. They were praying no-so prayers. When they prayed, they weren't praying saying, well, maybe this will work out and maybe God will do this. They prayed believing they were part of an inevitable victory that God was going to grant through the secret sauce of prayer. Now, today, there's two visions that I want to contrast with you. There's two visions of your life. There's two visions of why you're here. There's a secular vision. Secular is just worldly. Secular is not of God. There isn't necessarily anything wrong with secular, but there can be. A secular vision is you imagine something to be a reality, and then you put forth effort to go try to make it happen. So a secular vision is you imagining yourself to be in Steph Curry or losing the weight or earning the job or, or making the money or getting the beach body on, whatever it is. So that's like a secular vision, your imagination and your effort. But a kingdom vision is this. God is inviting you to believe a promise, and through faith, pray towards that, and to, through faith, to live toward that. The secular vision is this. You imagine a possibility. The kingdom vision is, you can go to the next slide, please, you believe a promise. See, most of us build our lives on possibilities. Most of us pray our prayers and their possibilities. You pray for your friend to get healed from cancer. Well, it's possible, but, but everybody dies some by cancer, some otherwise. You, you pray prayers of, hey, God, I hope I get the job. I hope I get married by this day. I hope I have a good day. I hope you protect me on the trip to Atlanta or the trip to you know Chicago or give us traveling mercies. So we imagine these possibilities. But when we understand the kingdom purpose of prayer, when we understand the kingdom purpose of prayer, we are in, being invited by God to believe a promise and then partner with Him in the reality that He's creating. And when we can grasp that view of prayer, then we pray with confidence and we pray without ceasing. Now, here's the thing secular promises or secular possibilities may or may not happen, a kingdom promise is inevitable. And prayer is how you get in on it and participate in it. A secular promise is not backed by anything other than your imagination and your effort or your, your discipline. A kingdom promise is backed by something far more profound. A kingdom promise is backed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to this. In Mark chapter 15, we get an unanswered prayer of Jesus. At three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And Jesus is quoting from Psalm 22.1. And Jesus in that moment is being God-forsaken so God doesn't have to forsake you. In that moment, Jesus is dying the death in my place and in your place. He didn't just die for you or for me like like a soldier over in the Middle East might be dying for the cause of America. He died instead of you and instead of me. It's very profound, and, and he did that. He begins to open up this kingdom to rebels and, re- and people who rejected him, and he quotes Psalm 22.1, and when a Jewish person, a Jewish rabbi quotes a psalm, he really he quotes the first verse, and the whole psalm sort of applies, and if you flip back in your Old Testament and read Psalm 22, you'll notice that it is a psalm about the crucifixion. Listen to what he says, Psalm 22, 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We just read that. And then we'll. Skip. he says, why are you so far from saving me? Now, notice what he says, and this, this psalm was written 500 years before the crucifixion. This psalm was written before the Romans perfected crucifixion, and here's what he says in 6 through 8. He says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. The gospels will tell us Jesus was scorned by the crowd, and they laughed at him as they walked by his crucified body. It says, all who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their head. It says, he trusts in the Lord, they say, let the Lord rescue him. My bones are out of joint. My mouth is dried up. Jesus said he was thirsty. We know Roman crucifixion stretched the person's arms so far out wide that the shoulder joints, the shoulder would pop, your, your bones would pop out of joint and you'd hang there until you suffocated to death. He says, my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You t- lay me in the dust of death. This is Psalm 22, written 500 years before the actual events of the crucifixion. You lay me in the dust of death, dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircle me. Dog is a Jewish word for a Gentile. So the Gentiles, of the Romans killed him, they circled around him, they pierced my hands and feet, that's crucifixion, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Jesus says, I am living this psalm out on the cross. But if you keep reading Psalm 22, it doesn't stop with the death and the, and the ugliness of crucifixion. You get down to verse 27 and look at what it says. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. What promise have we been talking about? This inevitable triumph of the kingdom of God through the death and resurrection of His Son. And all the families of all the nations will bow down before Him. All the people are going to worship Jesus for dominion or kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. The crucified one rules over the nations. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim His righteousness. There's our word, proclaim. Declaring to a people yet unborn, He has done it. Declaring to you and I. Declaring to the ends of the earth the kingdom of this God-man who died instead of you, who died instead of me. So when you pray prayers in the name of Jesus. That is not some tag-on just to summarize your prayer like you would write sincerely at the end of a letter. When you pray in the name of Jesus, you are praying prayers backed by the blood of Jesus. Prayers backed by the blood of Jesus, the answer is always yes. The answer is inevitable. The kingdom will come. We know who wins in the end. Prayers are the secret sauce to make it happen. So church, why aren't we on our knees praying? Right? Listen to what Paul would say, 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For every one of God's promises. I want everybody on three to say everyone. One, two, three. Everyone. Not some of God's promises. That's inevitable praying. Not, is it possible? It's inevitable praying. For every one of God's promises is what in Christ is yes in Him. Blood-bought promises of the inevitable triumph of God's kingdom. With every people group represented in heaven. With every people group, someone from every people group being born again, being saved. Because every one of God's promises are yes in Christ. Bought with his blood. Bought with his sacrifice. Bought because God abandoned him and does not abandon us. Therefore, through him we also say amen to the glory of God. You know what amen really means? So be it. Let it be. So you and I, when we hear God's invitation to pray, God is not just simply saying, oh, pray about it. God is inviting us to participate in the inevitable. And that should fuel and inspire our praying. But here's the tension that we all live in. A lot of our praying is praying for things that are possible. You're asking God for a possibility. There's not necessarily a definitive promise that he will get better. There's not a the definitive promise that God is going to save your marriage. So you a lot of our praying is the possible. And the key is to see how the possible and the inevitable line up. And so to help us see that, we're going to read a story in the or the book of Acts, Acts chapter 12 about two of Jesus's disciples and what happens to them and how the church responds. And the tension that we need to embrace and the tension that we need to feel is this tension between the possible and the inevitable. We have learned from God's Word today that the kingdom will win, the kingdom will triumph, the Word of God will be proclaimed by every, to, by every, to every nation, to every people group. So that's inevitable. And prayer is the fuel, the secret sauce of making that happen. However, there's the world of the possible that we're invited to pray about as well. So how do those two things intersect? Acts chapter 12, we start reading. About that time, which takes us us back to Acts chapter 11, where there's a famine that's affecting the church in Jerusalem. So about that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, this would be James the son of Zebedee, John's brother, with the sword. So, one of the apostles has been murdered. So, now we're getting into martyrdom in the kingdom, okay? The story continues. He says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter too during the festival of the unleavened bread, right around the time of the Passover, right around the time of the crucifixion. So all this stuff is aligning. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him. So he wants to keep Peter safe and secure. These guards would have changed shifts every three hours to maximize their alertness. He didn't want anything to happen to Peter. And he was intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So he was going to murder Peter like he murdered or like he executed James. But to do so during the Passover would be like a desecration, would be sacrilegious. So he's like, we'll kill him after the, after the event. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. Now, I want you to put yourself a little bit. You've been in situations like this. So why does James get martyred or killed? And Peter is sort of in limbo. So those are possibilities. God, we want you to save Peter. You didn't save James, but we want you to save Peter. That's a possibility. Now, we have to see how the possibility to connects to the inevitable. And we have to connect those dots. But we understand that the church's response was to pray passionately, zealously for Peter to be released or for something to happen. Why? Because prayer is the church's how. So here's the different tracks that you can be on in your life. The first is this you can pray for a possibility, and then you encounter a problem which leads you to believe now it's improbable, and then you quit or you stop. And this is where most of us pray. This is why most of our workouts go wrong, why most of us can't shoot three-pointers like Steph Curry, why most of us can't, you know, do certain things because eventually we think, well, it's possible if I work hard or do my best, boom, problem. Well, now it's improbable that the possible will happen, so I'll quit and stop and move on to something else. When you and I can understand that we are praying for the inevitable... When we encounter a problem, we don't stop praying. We increase the fervency of our prayers because of the inevitable victory that God has guaranteed. So the church continues to pray when they're pretty sure one of the founders of the movement of Christianity is about to be executed just like James was. So as we learn from this, there's a couple of things we'll say. Number one is this. We need to add disciplined fervency to our prayers. Disciplined, they prayed at night. They said, we got something better to do than to sleep. We have to pray. We have to pray for God's church. We have to pray for God's word. And so they were fervent in their praying. Kingdom advancing prayers, prayers that fuel the inevitable, are disciplined and have this fervency. And then look what begins to happen. Look what happens. It's very miraculous. And here's what you're going to wrestle with. Why does God do this for Peter, and yet he let James be martyred? Why does God heal your friend from cancer, but not someone else's friend? Why does God deliver here, but not over here? So there's a tension there. And unless you see the inevitable, you'll stop at the problem. But here's what happens in the rest of the story. When Herod was about to bring him, Peter, out for a trial that very night, Peter was bound with two chains, was sleeping between the two soldiers while the sentries in front of the gar- door guarded the prison. Why is Peter sleeping when he's about to be executed? Because he trusts God and he knows that he's on the winning team no matter what happens to him physically. you believe that? No matter what happens circumstantially, no matter what happens with your marriage, no matter what happens with the disease you're fighting or your friend or your relative is fighting, no matter what happens, you've already won if you are a part of the kingdom of God. It's inevitable. Your victory in him is assured. So you sleep well when you're guarded, awaiting your execution. Suddenly, though, an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell, striking Peter on the side. And he woke him up and he said, quick, get up. And the chains fell off his wrists. So now we have the miraculous occurring. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him, and follow me. So he went out and followed. And he did not know that what the angel did was really happening. But he thought he was seeing a vision. And they passed through the first and the second guards. They came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. This is happening at the Passover. The Passover coincides with the Exodus when God got his people out of Egypt, and here's God getting his man out of jail. The author, Luke, doesn't want us to miss the timing. Finally, Peter comes to to himself, or he sort of realizes he's not having a vision. He says, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. And as soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled. And what were they doing? They were praying, because prayer is the secret sauce to advance the kingdom and to move the church and to move God's will forward on earth as it is in heaven." He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And she recognized Peter's voice, and because of her door, joy, she did not open the door, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. So the church is praying for Peter's release. He shows up. God gets him out of jail, but they can't even open the door to get him in the church. That's kind of crazy. And, and we don't want to miss the irony there. And they say to her, you're out of her, your mind, they told her. But she kept insisting that it was true, and they said it's his angel. Which means, in Jewish first century thought, they thought Peter had died. So why were they still praying? Because their prayers was for, were for something more than the possible. God let Peter out of jail. Their prayers had to be for the inevitable. You don't quit praying when what is possible is no longer possible. You keep praying because your possible needs to be linked to God's inevitable, which is the triumph of the kingdom and the spread of his word throughout the world and to all nations. So, your prayers must be a mixture of the possible with the inevitable. Now, we're praying Yes, for physical protection and for physical healing. And we're praying for wisdom for our day. But what's inevitable is how will God be glorified? What's inevitable is how is God's word going to spread? And so we link the possible with the inevitable. And so Peter keeps on knocking because eventually the Romans are going to come looking for him. And he's standing outside in the street. He kept on knocking and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed motioning to them with his hand to be silent. He described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers, he said. And he left and he went to another place. And then if you read on through the story, Herod makes a political mistake. Herod gets killed. And then it ends with, but the word of God flourished and multiplied because the word of God cannot be chained. The word of God is how the inevitable triumph of the kingdom will occur. And the church was praying more than just for Peter's release. They were praying for the kingdom to advance and the word to flourish. So what we have to learn from this is this, that God tends to always keep his promises, but he'll do it in unexpected ways. Like the present that you wanted for Christmas, and you look under the tree, and it's like, that doesn't look like the shape of what I want, but it's what you need. So prayer has strange packaging, but it comes because it's in accordance with God's promises. So when you look at this and when you examine our prayers as a church here through the series The Prayer Project and how we're trying to link our prayers as, king, as a kingdom-seeking church to the inevitable, not just stop at what is possible. So a couple of checks. First check is this, for unbelief. Where in your life do you no longer believe in the inevitable according to God's word? Where in your life are you treat are you living a defeated as a defeated Christ follower or a defeated person? There should be no such thing as a defeated Christ follower when you are following Jesus to the inevitable kingdom triumph. So where is unbelief present in your life? Where are you believing that the possibilities of this world, listen, where are you believing that the possibilities of this world are better than the inevitabilities of the kingdom? That's your sin battle. When you believe the possibility of sex or the possibility of money or the possibility of earthly power is a greater reward than the inevitability of being at the right hand of God the Father and right hand of of God the Son and experience the joys of the kingdom and the pleasures there forevermore. Second check is for passion. Some of us are more passionate about the possible than God's inevitable. Now hear me, some of us are more passionate about what is possible than what is inevitable. We must be passionate, we must be zealous for every person that we know, for every unreached people group that we know of throughout the world, to have the Word of God shared with them. Whether it is through an invite to an Easter service or the sponsorship of a compassion child or the missionary work of a missionary that we support financially and through prayer, or we wrestle with the call of God ourselves to go across a boundary, across an ocean, and to share the gospel because we are passionate about what God has declared is inevitable. See, it's possible. It's possible for people to get healed. It's possible for marriages to get restored. I don't have the answer for why God let James be martyred and let Peter be rescued. Those were two possibilities that I have to trust to the sovereignty of God because his wisdom is better than mine. But what is, what is not negotiable is for the church to be impassioned for the inevitable spread of the Word of God. And so we check finally our alignment. How do our prayers match up with the inevitable? Have we connected the dots between our possible praying and our possible living and our possible I dream of when and the inevitable of what God's going to accomplish? So here's some examples of what I mean. Some of you are here today and you're facing adversity. And and what you would, go to the next slide, please. And what you're asking, sometimes you're tempted to say, God, make it end. God, make it go away. And you can pray that. You can ask for whatever you want. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. But you have to connect that to something God has promised to do inevitably. What has God promised to do for every Christ follower, no matter if you get healed or not, no matter if the problem goes away or not? He has promised in Philippians 1.6 that he or God who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, and you must hold out the hope that your adversity is part of God's plan to complete his good work in you. That's connecting your possible with God's inevitable. Some of you You walk in, and and you have greener grass syndrome. You'd like for there to be better circumstances, your current circumstances, whether that's your marriage, your job, where you live, and you're like, God, change it. I'd be happier over there. The grass is greener over there. God wants me to be happy, so that means I can dump my wife and move over. All that stuff, all that unbiblical stuff. You need to connect your possible. Yeah, maybe God will change your current circumstance, but you need to connect it to God's inevitable. And here's God's inevitable. God has determined. Listen to that word. God has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. So that job you hate, maybe God wants you there for a reason. That marriage that you can't stand, maybe instead of cursing it, you ought to fight for it because God's got you there for a reason. So connect your possible with God's inevitable, that you are where you are, you know who you know for a determined reason in the infinite mind of a holy God whose kingdom will win. Some of you walked in, you have needs, whether it's financial, physical, relational, emotional. And you're praying and you're praying and sometimes the fog lifts and sometimes the fog doesn't lift. So you pray for what's possible. How do you link what's possible with what's inevitable? Well, you have a promise in Philippians 4, 19. My God will supply all your needs. Doesn't say it once. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. So you pray the possible, but you have to yearn and long for and be zealous for the inevitable. We did not start this church to not go after the inevitable. That's why one of our core values is we are kingdom seekers. So we have been talking for weeks and we've been setting some goals for our church about Easter invitations, about hey God, would you let we want to baptize 400 people. God, we'd like to connect 10,000 people to life in Christ. Now let me let me just be honest with you, okay? The people you're praying for, the people you're inviting, it's possible they come it's possible they don't come. It is possible God allows us to baptize 400 people, maybe more, maybe less. It's, I, I don't know. Will God let us connect 10,000 people to discipleship and to life in Christ? It's possible. I don't know. But here's what's inevitable. God desires all people to be saved. Here's what's inevitable. God wants His gospel to be preached to everybody. God wants everybody to have a chance to hear the Word of God. God wants everybody to have an opportunity to see, to experience the good news of Jesus Christ. And the last thing that we want God to do is to find us sitting on the sidelines of history. A history with an inevitable outcome, the inevitable outcome that the gospel will be preached to all the nations and then the end will come. That's why we're kingdom seekers. That's why we're passionate about yard signs and invites and telling people about Jesus Christ. That's why we're passionate about freeing up seats so you can bring your disconnected, uh, unchurched, lost friends to sit with you to hear the good news. That's why we're passionate about sending 14% of our budget to help serve and help demonstrate and help declare the glory of God to the nations because we, Rockbridge, are part of something that is inevitable and we want God to find us faithful, faithful participants in the inevitable triumph of the kingdom of God. And I pray, I pray, I pray. I pray for your one. I pray for your family. It's possible because the triumph of the kingdom is inevitable. Would you pray with me? God, I pray today you would just give your people a vision that is so much bigger than what is possible here on earth. I pray we would get a vision of your kingdom I pray we would get a vision of your inevitable triumph and your eternal reign. And I pray, God, we would see how our lives here in 2018, Easter season, 2018, are so connected, God, to what you are doing and what you have promised to do through the death and resurrection and reigning rule of your son, King Jesus. God, give us that vision. Give us that passion. God, align us as your people. And God, I just pray for great favor. This Easter season. As we seek to connect more people to life in Christ. As we ourselves, God, seek to grow deeper in life in Christ. And as we declare you our king. And we live for your coming kingdom. And the inevitable triumph. That you will have, Jesus. Over all evil. Over all adversity. Over all injustice. And we will reign with you. We will reign with you as your sons and daughters. We pray these things, King Jesus, in your mighty and holy name. Amen.